Okay. Yeah, it's fine. Oh, thank you. And you got your stuff? So, it is the 14th of January, 2017, in Auckland, New Zealand. I hope everybody's okay being outside. The sun was kind of playing peekaboo here. So, we wanted to look at today uh, four keys to training your children in the culture of Krishna consciousness. And I, I should start by saying that had I tried to teach this 40 years ago, I would have taught it quite differently. You know, that, that my ideas and my understanding about what were the most important things to training your children in Krishna consciousness um, were very simplistic and uh, not very well thought out and not very experiential based. But we're going to look now at, at things that we've seen not only from Guru Sadhu Shastra as being very important and, and very critical, but also that we've seen in general with devotees. What is it what is it that really makes the big difference? And in addition from studying in general, how is it that children what are the factors that make a child interested in following the religion and culture of their families? Why, why do some people stay and some people decide to do something else? So we're looking at all of those. At, at Guru Sadhu Shastra, at you know, all of our decades of experience with children in our own Hare Krishna movement, what were the defining factors? And then in general, in the world. Why, why do children follow or not follow uh, the culture and practices of their own family? Okay. And we're going to look at four things, and each of these four things is so powerful that just that thing in and of itself can make the difference for a child. And one thing you'll, you'll very quickly realize as we're going through this is that this isn't just about children. You know, the main response I get when I teach this is, oh, this doesn't just apply to children. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... One thing about what's nice about one thing nice about being outside is that the children are more easily happy without being happy to us. Okay. So I like us to think about because this isn't just about Krishna consciousness, and I'd like to make that very clear. This is about why children will follow the culture of their family. Or, or any particular culture. Why do people decide that they're going to take up a particular culture and way of life? What is the deciding factor? So when I'm looking at, at culture, I'm looking at culture in a very generic way. You understand? Sometimes when we use the word culture, the assumption is good culture. Like we use the word quality. This is a quality product. You know, literally, that doesn't make any sense. But what we mean is it's a high-quality product. So when we're talking about the culture of Krishna consciousness, I want to look, first of all, at any kind of culture. How is it that children learn and imbibe a culture? Whatever that culture may be, whether it's a wonderful culture or a demoniac culture or whatever. So how is it in our own experience, we've all been children, some of us here are still children, so how is it in our own experience 
that we learned a culture? How do we perceive the people in the culture? Can you give me just some ideas. Yeah. Just follow the example. Okay. So example. <coughs> yeah, you were going to say something? Uh, Not quite. Okay. Somebody else. How is it, right? We all learned a particular culture, right? A particular way of thinking, a particular way of doing things, right? If we talk about culture, we talk about how do we view the world, what are, what are our paradigms, what do we consider good behavior, what do we consider bad behavior, how do we interact with others, what's our philosophy of life, what's our goals of life. These, this is all cultural things. Or cultural, not in the sense of, you know, Maori culture versus French culture, but a whole way of life. How did we learn that? Yeah. Ideas, beliefs, and practices held by a group of people is a definition of culture. We're trying to figure out what we're talking about. Thank you. So that's what I was going to say earlier. So Ideas, beliefs, and practices held by a group of people as a good definition of culture. It's a new word. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That was a significant ad. <laughs> yes. It's kind of taught in schools and the media. Okay. When you say taught in schools and media, can you be a little bit more specific? How? But we'll put down schools and media. So schools, it can either be what is taught or what's not taught or, you know, how they're Okay, so like direct instruction? Yeah. Yes? It's uh, basically imbibing from the parents and the, from the grandparents as well, the culture, and then what they... Family? Um, oh, but when you talk about imbibing, see if you can get a little bit more specific. How exactly do we imbibe? Uh, the language what they speak at home. Oh, okay. Language. Language. Uh, the, 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 yeah, the, the, the rituals they follow. Then food. the food they eat. By the way, rituals doesn't just mean religious rituals. It means, do you sit down and have a family meal? I mean, for example, I was just the other day speaking to a devotee who said she visited a family where a person would cook and make an offering and then just take a portion of that prasadam to their room and eat it and then leave their dirty plate in their room, and other members of the family would kind of wander in the kitchen at odd times and get some if they wanted and leave dirty plates all over the house, and then nobody would clean the kitchen. That's a ritual. You know, that, that was that family's ritual. And she said when she visited the family, there was literally food all over the house. But they have this certain ritual that people, you know, if you're hungry, you just kind of wander in the kitchen and you just kind of see what's there and you take a plate and you go to your room and you eat it. And if you feel like cooking, you cook and then you don't even tell anybody that you cooked and you kind of... That was there. This is what I mean about culture being a, 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 a neutral term. So that was their rituals. Then you have other families where their rituals is somebody cooks and they make an offering and everybody sits and they take prasadam together. That's another kind of ritual. So ritual is not just... You know, do we offer RT in a particular way? It's, it's what are the the habits, rituals, and routines? 
What? Ah! Your chance. Etiquette's relationship. Yes. Enthusiasm and taste. Taste. What inspires the people around me. Okay. So enthusiasm and inspiration of others. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. I do think it's interesting that we use the word pressure, although it sometimes does feel like a pressure. Personal experience. Okay, personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> Reflection and personal choice. Yeah. Oh my God, so Maybe in many cases, I'm not sure. Obedience to elders are what is being taught. But that itself, in a sense, is a culture. Whether whether one should be obedient to one's elders is actually part of what you're learning. Some cultures do not value as much of that as others. Any other thoughts? How did we imbibe the culture growing up? Yes? Experience of alternatives. Personal experience, including alternatives. Yes. Yes. Okay. Any other thoughts at all? So, it's interesting the first one was example, and generally people will say example. You know, we all have seen that little children imitate, right? Very young children are basically just imitators. And they imitate without discretion, isn't it? You can always tell what kind of language and habits are in a house by seeing what the two-year-olds do because they just copy everything without discrimination. But this idea of personal experience including alternatives is something which is very new in human society. And this new thing in human society has greatly diminished the value of example in terms of training others in culture and training others in values and so forth. So it wasn't that long ago that people didn't travel much. People didn't leave their own little environment. People lived in smaller communities. My granddaughter was looking up some facts how it used to be that 2% of people lived in cities and 
the rest of people lived in the country, and now it's reversed. Right, so people lived in, in smaller, generally, most people lived in smaller communities where people knew each other, and you didn't have a lot of experience of things outside of your community. You didn't experience very different examples. The examples of your parents were also the examples of your grandparents and your aunties and your uncles and your cousins. Right? You understand? And, the, and your neighbors. You, you weren't aware of other alternatives. You didn't even know they existed. You follow? You know, you, maybe you'd hear about something in school sometime that there are some people that do this. But it wasn't anything within your purview. You didn't have any way of contacting it. And so because of that, Elders could set a good example, and children mostly followed it. Because we do tend to be imitators as children, and there was nothing else to imitate. You know, unless you became a sailor. You follow what I'm saying? And you joined the military, you became a sailor. I mean, how would you even be exposed to anything else? And, I mean, I, I just remember even when, when I was young, I mean, it's just not that long ago that when we wanted to travel across the Atlantic, you generally took a boat. When I first, my first airplane flight, when my sister was getting married overseas, my sister got married in Israel when I was three, and we went by propeller plane. Can you imagine that? You know, and we had no way to call her by phone. You couldn't call. And a letter would take a month. Each way, you know, month to get there, month to get back. My father brought a, brought a reel-to-reel tape recorder for us and for her, and we would make a tape recording, and then we would mail that to her because he didn't like to write letters. And she would listen to the recording, and then they would, she and her husband would make another recording and mail it back, and that was how we communicated. You know, I'm not that old. And, and, and I mean, when my oldest son went to Gurukul in Vrindavan, we couldn't call. That was in the 80s. We wanted to call India. We had to first send a letter and make an appointment, and then it was a very poor connection. And if you think about, you know, the the war in Vietnam, they said was the first time that there was immediate reporting of a war. The people were being able to relay reports from the battlefield, which is one of the reasons that there was so so much objection to it. The previous to that, like World War II, if you wanted the news of World War II, you would have to go to a movie theater and you would see the news on a newsreel in a movie theater a week or two or three after it happened. So there were wars where the people surrendered and other places they kept fighting because they didn't know that a surrender took place someplace else. So the, my point is that people didn't have much experience outside of their own little milieu. And if we think today that we're going to raise our children mostly through example, we're in for a very unpleasant surprise. Because the children are going to see very, very, very quickly many, many, many other examples. I mean, I get asked periodically by devotees, what do I do with the fact that there are other devotees in my community who don't have the same standards as I have? And there's no answer for that. You just have to say, there's nothing really you can do about that. Your children are going to be exposed to all... You know, even if you're very protective of your children, they're going to be exposed to all kinds of things, and you won't even know about it until they're much older. 
and then they'll say, oh, by the way, Mata, when I was 10 at so-and-so's house, they used to do such and such, and they told me not to tell you. And you're like, oh, really? How lovely. So, seriously, I mean, this is really seriously a fact, and, and even devotees will think, well, I'll stay in a community like this, or, you know, the big thing I was here is I'll go to Mayapur. And I say, you, you just don't, you, you don't know. You don't really know what's going on. You're thinking, I'm just going to let my kid run outside and go anywhere. And they're going to be exposed to all kinds of examples. So although example is still very, 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 very important, it's not enough. It's, ne- it's what we call logic necessary but not sufficient. It's just not enough. And if someone relies primarily on example, it won't work. And the main people who do this tend to be the people still from from the older, more traditional cultures who still, you know, they were raised mostly just through example and so they're thinking that's all they need to do and then they get very disappointed. Now, we see a lot of things here about people, right? We've got family and schools. We have like the teachers and peers inspiration, enthusiasm of others. Okay, anything we could say about the elders, obedience to elders, um, relationships. So we have a lot of things here about people. But I'd like us to think about what is it about people that induces us to want to mold ourselves for those people. Again, it's not just example. What is it about certain people that we make a choice that I'm going to mold myself for this person? And some thoughts? Yes. The affection between... Okay, definitely the affection. There's, um, there's a very famous author who's an animal trainer. Her name is Karen Pryor. She's written some excellent books. And she writes about that very, uh, we were talking about yesterday briefly, about rewards and punishment. Very small animals cannot be trained through rewards and punishment. Animals have to reach a certain age before they'll respond to rewards and punishment. But she sees that even very young animals will respond to affection. And her conclusion is that we're not really wired to be obedient, but we're wired to please. That this, this, the concept of obedience is something that, that comes later. But our intrinsic wiring is to please rather than to obey. And we have a natural desire to please somebody if we feel that they care about us. And one of my Gurukul students taught me years ago he said, actually, we follow people if we're both convinced they know what they're doing and that they care about us. Because if they know what they're doing but they don't care, they could use their knowledge to manipulate us for their own purposes. And if they care but they don't know what they're doing, then they can give us wrong instruction with good intention. So that concept of affection. Any other people that we mold ourselves to, the few other people that we willingly mold ourselves to. Yeah. Admiration. Admiration. Yeah. You'll find this, uh, people will mold themselves to those they've never met like that. You know, they, they have a poster of some rock star in their room. 
and they're they're taking on the dress and the behavior of that rock star and there's no relationship of affection coming from that person toward them of course this is really the shantaras the spiritual shantaras where there's not any service there's not some service but there is some sort of an affection and admiration at least coming from my direction so that person may not have any affection for me but I have some affection and admiration for them. So we're still dealing with affection, but it's not mutual. And the other people that we will mold ourselves for. Yeah. Out of fear. Out of fear. Now, a lot of, of parents and teachers try to use that one. That's a big one. Um, anybody tell me something about fear? If I'm, if I'm molding myself out of fear, can you tell me anything about that? Very short-lived, yes. You only will mold yourself out of fear when the person you're afraid of is? When they're in power and when they're around, when they're present. So you'll mold yourself out of fear when the person you fear has actual power over you. They have, they have some way that they have power over you. And when they're around. Yes? Do we all do this? Do we all modify our behavior when certain people are around? And then as soon as they're not around, we go right back to what we were doing before? Yes. Oh, is somebody coming? I better change what I'm doing. So this is, right? Typical, you see it in every office, in every school, in every family, correct? Yes? So uh, dictatorships, by the way, you cannot rule by force. Impossible. Because you'd have to have two police officers for every citizen to rule by force. But you can rule by fear. And the way, the way dictatorships rule by fear is they very randomly punish people. They don't just punish people for actual crimes. You know, they'll, they'll punish people without a trial. You follow? So you're in a constant state of fear and they get family members to inform on each other and neighbors to inform on each other. So you never know who your friends are. You never know what you're going to get arrested for. You understand? So what, what are they trying to do there? They're trying to make you feel like they're omnipresent. Because remember, when, we're, when we act out of fear, it's only when the person we're afraid of is present. So if they can give you a sense that they're always present, then the idea is you'll change your behavior all the time. Does that make sense to everybody? Does that actually happen? If people are changed by fear due to an omnipresent fear, do they permanently change their behavior? Historically speaking. Can you give me some examples? Historically speaking. Communist Russia. As soon as the communists were out of power, boom, the people changed. Even though it was generations. Generations of people were ruled by fear and they actually changed their behavior and their values to be in accord with their fearful leadership. And as soon as the fearful leadership was out of power, immediately people started doing what they actually wanted to do. Isn't that interesting? So even if you're able to have omnipresent fear or an illusion of omnipresent fear and you're able to keep that up over generations, as soon as that is removed, people no longer will mold themselves to that culture. So um, 
fear is a very it's a very temporary stopgap emergency measure which we all have to use sometimes yes but it doesn't really change people it doesn't really change people it, it may get your kid to put down the knife it may you know what i'm saying hey put that down you know it, it, it may get some immediate reaction if there's an emergency situation but it on the long term level it doesn't change anything and in fact what does it bring out if we're if we're following somebody out of fear what kind of what what are we really feeling inside animosity yeah so it in fact it pushes you in the opposite direction in the long haul okay so we have these two main relationships which are sort of varieties of the same thing some relationship of affection either where there's mutual affection or where there's at least i feel affectionate to that person and of the two what do you think is more dramatic the mutual one or the one where it's just my feeling affection for that person the mutual one it's very hard to sustain a real change in values when i'm not getting some sort of reciprocation from the other party when it's just me you know worshiping them and admiring them it's it's, it's much harder to sustain that so i always like to tell the story of of my father because it's just such a good example of of this kind of relationship so my father was a very busy man he was the ceo of a multinational company he was also the oh some people that i wanted to see He was also the um the president of a temple, not a Hare Krishna temple, honestly. If I can just stop for a minute and So my father was he was a, certainly a very busy man. He had a lot on his plate. It wasn't like he had a lot of spare time. And still he would spend 2 hours with me every morning. From about 5:30 to 7:30 every morning. until he went to work or until I had to go to school from the time I was 2 until I went to university when I was 17. And my mother would stay up late late night watching TV and she would wake up like at 10 in the morning. I I didn't see my mother very much. Right? But my father was there every single morning. And he would tell me stories. Uh he would play games with me. I mean, how many parents really play games with their two-year-old kids? He would make me breakfast and he never cooked anything in his life. But he would toast bread for me and he would he would always make fresh orange juice. So he had a, a hand orange juice maker you see them sometimes on the with the street vendors in India. You know, so he was making fresh squeezed orange juice for me every morning. And because of that, basically anything my father asked of me, I would do. You know, when I, from the time I was about 3, he said don't ever smoke. This was before the warnings on the cigarette packs. This is when there were still cigarette ads on TV. And this is when, you know, in the movies everybody was smoking and so forth. And he said don't smoke. He said I'm convinced that it's a killer. Which wasn't brought out, you know, publicly for a long time after that. And because of that, I mean, when I went to high school, most of the kids smoked. Probably 90% of the kids smoked. And I didn't. And I would have otherwise. I'm sure I would have. But because my father said don't ever smoke, it wasn't because I was convinced medically. You understand? That wouldn't have done it for me. Not with all my friends, all most of my friends smoking. But I just wanted to please him. 
you know, I, I just really wanted to make him happy. And I wanted to make him happy because we had this very deep relationship. And I'm very grateful that when I decided to join the Hare Krishna movement, my father was supportive. My mother wasn't, but my father was. And if my father hadn't been supportive, I don't think I could have disobeyed him. It wasn't so much disobeyed him. I don't think I could have disappointed him. Because my father's relationship with me was not about obedience. He, di he didn't have an obedience-type relationship with me at all. But I, I wanted to make him happy, and I didn't want to disappoint him. And when... Uh, we, I met with, with uh, Prabhupada with my father many times. And one time when Prabhupada gave me Gayatri Mantra and my father became a life member, Prabhupada said, good father, good daughter. And I've seen that also in, in my time in the Hare Krishna movement, that the devotees that really have affected me are the devotees with whom I have some love and trust relationship. Although sometimes it's been just a one-way thing. Sometimes it's been people just who I admire, even if they don't have much, much uh, dealings with me. So, the first thing is love and trust, which of course Srila Prabhupada said that our movement should be based on love and trust. We humans are very funny creatures, and if we love somebody, we will do almost anything for that person, especially if we think they love us in return. We'll do really almost anything. We will modify our behavior, we will modify our worldviews, and we'll modify them permanently and deeply. Not just superficially, like we do out of fear. You know, we, we really will undergo a deep change. Now, ultimately, this is bhakti in a nutshell. What bhakti is about is, I fall in love with God, and because I have fallen in love with God, therefore, I want to get rid of my inartas. Therefore, I want to associate with his devotees. Therefore, I want to chant his holy name. Not... I want to get rid of my inartas and my bad habits so I can use God as a means of becoming enlightened and happy. You follow? It's not really bhakti, although we may, may approach bhakti. But the process of bhakti is because I am attached to Krishna. And that may start with because I am attached to guru or because I am attached to a devotee. But it starts with some attachment. Those of you who are at our, our Manashiksha seminar, the Raghunath Swami starts with attachment. And not just attachment, he says, excessive, unprecedented attachment. You start with this great attachment to somebody, to something, but especially that personal relationship. Now, a title doesn't do it. I am the father, I am the mother, therefore. Even I am the guru, therefore. It, do it doesn't do it. It may be very temporarily. You follow? But long term, it doesn't make it. I'm the teacher, therefore. If we have a title of mother, father, teacher, guru, whatever, temple authority, and we think by virtue of that title, the people under me are going to do what I ask, and the people under me are going to imbibe the values that I'm teaching them, it doesn't work. You know, it may work temporarily if that person holds some kind of power over us. You know, if they have power over what we eat or power over our something, you know. But it, it's not lasting. It's not lasting. So the first one is love and trust. Um, what I'd like us to do right now is 
you can either on your own or if you want to work with another two or three people. If you could make a list of the people in your life that for whom you have changed yourself willingly, where you have made an effort to change yourself, where you've made an effort to adopt their ways of thinking. And if you make just a short list, it can even be two or three people. And then what was it in that relationship that inspired you to make that change? So if we could just do this like 10 minutes. Is that all right? Okay, well, one thing with having something with children that some of you, instead of doing what we were trying to do, were taking care of the children, but that's okay. All right. So I want to look at the next thing. So the first thing was relationships of love and trust. And if we just have that, if we just have that, that can be enough. And we see many people who've, you know, committed to Krishna consciousness, stayed strong in Krishna consciousness, been rescued in their Krishna consciousness, just by relationship of love or trust, isn't it? And if, if I look at various points in my spiritual life, in my spiritual development, almost always we can point to some person. Somebody who believed in me, somebody who cared about me, somebody who had a relationship with me, somebody that I wanted to please, where I thought, okay, you know, for this person, I'll do that. And actually, for myself, I see as I'm going on in my, in my devotional life that those relationships are becoming more important, not less important. And by the way, in the spiritual world, that's the most important thing. And when you come to the higher levels of bhakti, that's the most important thing. What distinguishes, say, Vaidhi Sadhana Bhakti from Raghunuga Sadhana Bhakti is relationship. The difference in that sadhana is in Vaidhi you don't yet have a relationship with specific residents of Vrindavan and in Raghunuga you do. And where our desire to please Krishna is also influenced by our desire to please and emulate particular devotees of Krishna. So it's a principle that works right from the beginning to the end. And without that, it's very, very difficult to, to really take up a spiritual practice. Possible, but very difficult. All right, let's look at some other things here. We have here media and music, to some extent, language. some extent reflection. So, in every culture of the world, the values and the behaviors, the philosophy, from the beginning of time until the present, has been taught through... Hmm? Stories. It's been taught through stories. And although we do learn by direct instruction, um, we don't learn very well that way. You know, if you just say to people, be honest, is that very effective? Is that very effective? So, just like, you know, I'm assuming that all of us here are honest, but is anybody going to say I'm 100% honest? Anybody here want to say that they're 100% honest? So if I say, well, that's terrible. You know, it's really terrible. We should all be completely honest. Is that effective? What happens when you hear something like that? Hey, come on, everybody. You should be completely honest. I mean, come on. We put up a shield, isn't it? Immediately. You just, you feel like you're being attacked. And you just put up some kind of a shield. 
And you just say, I'm going to wait this one out. Isn't it? Don't we do that? And it's interesting that although we respond that way to direct instruction almost all the time, that we will use direct instruction with somebody else. Isn't that strange? I mean, how many times do I really modify my behavior because of direct instruction? Only on very small things. Not nothing. I've never modified my my behavior and my values from direct instruction on anything major. Just minor. You know, and even then, sometimes, oh, that's right. They don't want me to put this thing on there. They want me to put it on this. Side. <laughs> you know. But stories are very different. Just like we have the story everybody knows of the boy who cried wolf, right? The guy's watching the sheep. It's definitely a New Zealand story. <laughs> you know? The guy's watching the sheep, and that's pretty boring. That's what you do if you want to go to sleep. You know, you watch the sheep, and he's totally bored. And so he runs into the village. You know, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And so they come up with whatever their bows and arrows or their guns. And there's no wolf, and there's no wolf poo and there's no wolf tracks and you sure there was a wolf oh yeah yeah I saw him over there and then he thought well that was exciting and so a few weeks later he says you know there's a wolf there's a wolf and they come again and they look and there's no evidence of a wolf and a few weeks later again he's like oh you know sheep (laughs) and he tries it again and this time fewer people come and then when there's actually a wolf Nobody comes. So did you notice when I'm telling that story? Of course, everybody's heard that story before. But when, you, when I'm telling that story, you notice there's no defense? Did you notice that? When I'm giving you direct instruction, you put up a shield? Or when I'm telling a story, you don't? So stories bypass the false ego. Pretty much completely. You're not doing a head-to-head power struggle between my ego and your ego when you tell a story. And the person actually takes down that false ego barrier and just lets the story in. So that's one reason why stories are very effective. Another reason is we actually like stories. And there's, we were talking a little bit yesterday about empirical evidence, but there's a lot of empirical evidence that people learn better when they're having fun. And stories are fun. We enjoy stories, especially if they're good stories, well told. And I think we enjoy stories because Krishna enjoys stories. He not only enjoys... I mean, in the spiritual world, every evening there's entertainment. You all know this? Every evening there's entertainment. And Krishna and his friends... I think think it's Kavi Karnapur in his Anandarindavan temple who says that they get so rowdy that that Nandamars has to call for his constables to wave some sticks around, you know, because all the boys are whooping it up. <laughs> so they have different kinds of entertainment. You know, they have jugglers and acrobats and stuff. But they also have stories. And, of course, what stories is Krishna watching in his entertainment every night? Stories about himself, yeah. So stories about the Ramayana and the Singadev. And when Mother Yasoda puts Krishna to bed at night, she's telling him stories. You know that, right? He's telling him stories about the Singadev and... Rupa Goswami says that before Krishna goes to the forest every morning, that Mother Yasoda ties in a singa kavich around his wrist. And she says, now if any of those demons come, you just prayed in a singa day. And Rupa Goswami says, Krishna's repressing a smile 
He says, may that repressed smile protect you all. So my point is that Krishna likes stories. He likes to hear about stories. And we say Leela. Leela means stories. Can you? Can everybody hear me? Everybody okay? You're all used to tuning out child noises in the background? Okay. This is part of your reality. I'll come a little closer. But if you're already accustomed to child noises as our background noises that you're not even aware of, then that's fine. So Krishna not only likes to hear stories, he likes to be in stories. That's what Leela is. Leela is just stories. And the ultimate spiritual reality is not, you know, executive board meetings. You know? Like of all any of you who are teachers, the, the different forms of writing we teach kids to do, essays, narratives, and reports, and poetry. Krishna likes narratives. He likes stories. He likes to be in them. He likes to tell them. He likes to hear them. And so we, as Krishna's part and parcel, we all like stories. We're very, very attracted to a story, and we're much more attracted to a story than to other forms of communication. And if you want to test this, try, try switching to a story in your speaking with somebody. And if it's a good story, well told, they'll, they'll find they instantly become interested. So our false ego is down, and we, we like it, we're, we're eager, we're interested in the story. Now, the other fascinating thing about stories is when we hear a story, something really amazing happens in our subtle body. So I know we've all had an experience. We're watching a film, watching a drama, reading a book, and we feel as if we're experiencing the story. Yes? You know, the, the character gets scared and we jump. Right? Or our heart beats faster or we cry and we're just sitting in a chair. <laughs> But mentally, we are experiencing the story. And you may be aware that uh, athletes will often train not only out on the field, but they're also trained mentally. And they found that the muscles activate, not completely, but about two-thirds as they would if they were actually on the field, just by imagining it. In fact, we do that kind of thing, like we'll rehearse for something in our mind. Right? And if, when they've done brain studies of people when they're reading a story or hearing a story, they find that the person in the, in the brain will be doing the actions of the characters in the story. You know, the character picks up a jacket and in your mind you pick up a jacket. So what we're doing with stories is having basically an experience. You know, we have here about also personal experiences. We're having an experience through the story. So if the story is about people who do moral, heroic, good things, then by reading that story, we are practicing doing moral, heroic, good things, as if we were doing them. We're actually practicing doing them. And if we read and hear stories about people doing nasty, terrible, evil things, and we identify with them, then it's like we're practicing doing that. And this is the main reason why people will imitate like various stories that they'll hear or they'll read. Because while they're hearing or reading the story, they are, in effect, doing that thing they're hearing or reading about. So, and, and, and again, you're totally open to it. When you're, when you're reading a story or hearing a story, you've just opened up your consciousness to it. Which would be very, very different than if we're describing certain behavior out of a story format. 
You follow? Once you get out of a story format, you have a much more accepting, rejecting function going on in the mind. And with a story, that kind of, oh, it's just a story. It, it sort of goes to sleep. And even many times when we're hearing or reading a story, listening to a story, our brain goes into a very mild hypnotic state. So we become much more suggestible. It changes us. And, you know, let's look at our Shastra. Bhagavad Gita is a story. It's quite a story. Arjuna's fighting against his, his guru and his, his grandfather, basically. It's his granduncle. But he's fighting against, you know, the, the people who raised him. His father died when he was young. And these are the people who raised him. He has so much love for them. They have so much love for him. And they're, you know, they're trying to kill each other. I mean, it's quite a story. And the background of this, you know, with Draupadi's disrobing, I mean, it's a very emotional, involving story that the Bhagavad Gita is in the middle of. Or the Bhagavatam with Parikit, who's at the point of death. Right? And of course, the Bhagavatam is also stories within a story within a story within a story. And again, empirical research says that we're most affected by those kind of stories. You know, my best friend's auntie's cousin, that when you have layers like that, when you have a story that's within a story, within a story, within a story, that it even more d dissolves the resistance and affects us. And that is what the Bhagavatam is, isn't it? It's, it's like layers. It's like layers of stories. I mean, how many of our Shastras are not like that? Not very many. Almost all of our instruction is within all of the philosophy, all of the prayers that are in our scriptures, they're within the context of a story. And of course, in, Prabhupada talks about how in ancient times, and even not ancient, even when he was growing up, that people used to gather together every evening to hear stories. I mean, now what we do is each family goes in their own little family house, or each member goes in their own little room and watches a story on their own little box. You know, that's our modern equivalent of it's the evening and you've worked hard all day and your brain is, is tired and you want some downtime and everybody goes to stories. Right? But it used to be that it was a community thing. People would gather together and there would be storytelling from the scriptures. Uh, most... Um, most of the very effective advertisements are in the form of some kind of a story. Maybe a very short story, maybe a 30-second story, but it's in the form of a story. You put down music here. Most music that's very effective for people is also in a story form. Have you noticed that? Most music is telling some sort of a story. It may, be, it may be, again, a very brief story. Now, stories are so powerful that in a short amount of time, they can change the values and the behavior of an entire society. That can sometimes happen with love and trust relationships if you have a very powerful love leader, like, say, Nelson Mandela. You know, or on the negative side, somebody like Hitler. But, you know, sometimes if you have a very powerful leader that people really revere, a whole society can change. But stories are also like that. So if we think about this for a minute, you know, how did the whole world start following this kind of global secular culture. It's all due to the media, isn't it? And what is the media? It's full of stories. That's how it was done. I mean, the kind of cultural conquest that nations used to do through military 
If we think of how the Muslims tried to spread their culture all over the world, or the Christians tried to spread their culture all over the world. But the modern global secular culture has been spread through stories, not so much through military. And stories totally change people's view of things. So when I was young, the idea of being ecologically minded and caring about the environment was considered very socially unacceptable. I mean, look, I grew up in an era where antibiotics had become the, the savior of mankind. Antibiotics were going to cure disease, and we were going to colonize the moon, and we were going to colonize under the ocean. We had refrigeration. And we had all these incredible things. We had radio, we had television. And, and you know, my parents grew up without refrigerators. They grew up with ice boxes. We had airplanes, we had spaceships. And science and technology were going to take over the world. When I was a kid, chemical pesticides and fertilizers were a great gift of science to mankind. They were going to spark a green revolution and we were going to feed the world. We were going to eradicate malaria with DDT. You know, there were advertisements, better living through chemistry. I cannot imagine anybody advertising that today. But that was an advertisement, better living through chemistry. Plastics. Wow, we had plastics. I mean, it was, it was such an exciting time with science and technology. And I, I remember I used to watch this, uh, this TV show, Star Trek, where the computer would synthesize food. Because, you know, they're traveling in outer space. They're not going to have a farm up there. So they would make synthetic food. And we thought that was great. Wow, synthetic food. We don't have to farm anymore. Just have the computers make food. Now, most of you are here going, what in the world? But that is how we thought. That was how I was raised. And we started understanding that maybe it wasn't quite like that when I was a teenager. It started coming into awareness that maybe the promise and the reality are not the same. And I remember being in pro protest marches for ecological awareness when I was 15, 16 years old. But that was considered very antisocial, and the police would try to stop the protest marches. I mean, it, it was trying to be stopped by the government, and you'd be criticized by your teachers, and you'd be criticized by your parents, and how can you be against progress? So how did we change? Well, I tell you, we didn't just change because of facts. We changed because of stories. We changed because, you know, Rachel Carson wrote her Silent Spring about you get up in the morning in spring and there's no birds. And because of stories of, you know, the workers spraying pesticides who were getting cancer and, and deformed children. And, you know, it was these stories that changed people's awareness. It wasn't facts. And the stories got to the point that people started, we have, you know, obviously not all over the world with everybody, but there's a general 180 degree shift. That, the, the, that it, it's exactly the opposite. That if you were to march today, you know, in favor of better living through chemistry and synthesize food, you'd be considered antisocial. But that's how it happened. And, you know, that's a positive example. The negative examples are things like abortion and homosexuality. So how did abortion go to being legal all over the world? How did that happen? Almost all over the world. Again, it didn't happen through facts. It wasn't that anybody talked about it. Nobody got up and said, well, this is actually what happens in an abortion, so you should be in favor of letting women do it. No, who would do that? 
Who would be in favor of abortion if you talk about what it is? You follow? Very, very few people. But they told a story. Oh, here's this 13-year-old girl, and she got raped. She didn't know what to do, and so she saw some, you know, backstreet doctor, and then she got an infection, and she died. You understand? And it was these stories that really changed people's view. And if you'll notice, the most effective anti-abortion propaganda is also stories. You know, there's a few people, I know at least in America, who um, their mother had tried to abort them and they, it didn't work. They were the product of failed abortions. And they tour the country, and many of them have physical problems because of the abortion procedure. But they tour the countries telling their story. And there, there's a person standing in front of you, and it's a, it's a story. Or, or people who were conceived in rape. You know, and his parents wanted to abort them, abort them, but didn't. And and they're 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 coming and saying, "This is my story. This is how I was conceived." You know, do you, do you really want to stand there and say I should have been killed? And then people are affected in ways that they're not if you just talk about the facts. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that the two ways that people will change deeply held opinions are somebody that they love and respect has an opposite opinion and stories. And what rarely changes anyone's opinion ever is facts. In fact, if you have a deeply held opinion and you hear contrary facts, the evidence is you'll become more firmly fixed in your existing opinion. Isn't that odd? By the way, we see this in our Hare Krishna movement. We see different devotees have different strongly held opinions. And it doesn't matter what facts you present. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried presenting facts to a devotee or non-devotee, whoever they are, and it doesn't have any effect? It just doesn't work? I, mean, I remember my mother, she was saying, you know, I just don't believe that you're not this body. It's just ridiculous, you know, we are our bodies. And then I said, well, you know, Mother, when, when somebody dies, the body's there, but they're not there. She said, yeah, you know, that's true. But I don't think that we're not this body. <laughs> and I was kind of scratching my head. And, How is that possible? How can you agree with a fact and still hold on to your same opinion? But th that's how we function. So the second thing is stories. And stories mean not only having stories about Krishna and a lot of stories about Krishna, but stories about people and situations that exemplify the kind of values and the kind of lifestyle we'd like our children to have. And of course, this implies not having exposure to the other kinds of stories, which is becoming harder and harder and harder and harder to do in our modern world. You know, the negative kinds of stories are just pervading our, our culture that it's, it's very, very difficult to get away from them. Okay, so the next thing is stories. And... Okay. The other... Um, we, we talked about... talked about stories a little bit when we talked about sadhana. Alright, the next thing here is something we had a whole seminar about the other day. So... We discussed a lot of that, a lot of the points then. 
Oh, I'll well, we'll just use black again in circle. Okay, this is kind of going to go in two of them. But we don't have actually much about this here. How many of you actually suggested this one here? This third one has to do with what makes us feel part of a group. What makes us really identify with a group? Not just values and not just behavior, but also group identity. And, and there's a... We don't have time to get into this, so I'm just going to throw out this really... I'm going to throw out something that could spark weeks of discussion, and I'm not going to discuss it, but I'm just going to throw it out there. That... If we're looking for our children to identify as devotees of Krishna and as, as Krishna conscious persons, we may also very much want them to identify with our group of devotees. And those are not exactly the same thing. Does this make sense to everybody? In other words, I could identify that I really want to fall in love with God, that I understand God to be Krishna, and I want to dedicate my life to falling in love with Krishna. But I might not have that much to do with the Sangha. I might be doing a lot of my Krishna consciousness very much on my own. And we certainly see people that do that. But we also have a Sangha. So this next area has to do a lot with being part of that Sangha, with being part of that association, although it also has to do with just wanting to take up Krishna consciousness in general. And again, I don't want to discuss so much the difference and why we would be interested in them, but it's... I want to put that as, I want to put that as there. <laughs> so we want to be part of a society or a group or an organization. We all have a desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and we're social beings. You know, we, we, even someone who's a hermit wants to feel that they're doing something for something greater than themselves. As I said again, we talked about this the other day, that what motivates us to do things, what motivates us to be happy, is that we're... We're using who we are for something that's greater than ourselves in a way that's very satisfying for us. This is like, the, if you want to talk about the essence of our, be, of our actions in our life, what do we consider fulfilling actions? I'm being who I am. I'm being authentically who I am. My talents, my abilities, my personality... And I'm doing something in a way that I, I feel good. Wow, I'm good at this. But it's for something greater than just myself. You know, the happiness that you're going to feel cooking a great meal that you're the only one who eats is not as much as the happiness you feel creating a good meal that you share with somebody. You know, we want... I mean, Prabhupada talked about this in kind of a, a, a negative way, that Arjuna felt that what was the use of having opulence if he couldn't share it with anybody. You know, if, if, I, if I make a beautiful home and I can't invite anybody to it, it's not as satisfying. And that's not just for an ego of, oh, see what a great thing I did. But we want to feel that we're contributing to others. We want to feel that we're contributing to the happiness of others. It's, it's actually a deep spiritual need that you see even often in animals. That even animals will, you know, not always, but animals will sometimes exhibit behavior 
that they want to make someone else happy. They want to make some other, you know, member of their species happy, or sometimes that they want to make it even a member of another species happy. But we want to make others happy. The highest expression of wanting to make others happy is wanting to make others happy through who I am. Through, through me and my unique gifts and my unique personality and my unique talents. Not just wanting to make them happy in a general way. Does that make sense to everybody? And this is the main motivation, motivator for most of the work that we do in the world. So people who analyze what inspires people at, at a job or what inspires people to take up a particular hobby, this is what they're going to go for. You know, it comes, people talk about it in different forms and with different terms, but you always come down to the same thing. And this is true on a, on a completely materialistic level. So even an out-and-out -out atheist is going to feel much happier if they're acting according to their nature for something bigger than themselves than they would if they're not acting according to their nature and they're just working for themselves. And therefore, even people who have nothing to do with God and nothing to do with religion talk about work in those terms. You know, where, where your greatest joy meets, meets the world's greatest need. You've heard that? A very common expression. And people talk about this even with no relationship to God consciousness. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for where can I express who I am as fully and completely as possible in a way that somebody else will appreciate and feel happy about. Yes, he did. Interestingly enough, Prabhupada had to leave India to do that. So that's what we're looking for. Now, my dear friends, that cannot be fully found materially speaking. It cannot be fully found materially speaking because A, materially speaking, I'm never being fully and completely who I am. And materially speaking, I'm never going to find a greater than me that's actually satisfying. My family, if we dedicate ourselves to our family, we're going to be disappointed. I will give you 100% guarantee on it. If we dedicate ourselves to our religious institution, we're going to be 100%. I'll give you another 100% guarantee on that. The religious institution is not quite the same as God. If you fully dedicate yourself, you know, to your society, to your nation, to your business, you're going to end up being disappointed. You're going to end up saying, I gave and 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 I'm just not going to give anymore. You know, the person doesn't, the other people don't really see, they don't really appreciate, they criticize, they're, they're blind to what we give, it wasn't what they really wanted, or they want us to give in a way that's not authentically ourselves, they want us to be somebody different than who we are, <laughs> and it, it just, it doesn't make it. You know, we have this fantasy that we're going to be able to find this in this world, we're going to be able to, the right person, the right job, the right country, the right organization, and somehow I'm going to make it work. And when it doesn't work, we become bitter, we become angry, we, we, we change objects, and etc. What we have in Krishna consciousness is we have a facility where you can actually do that. So we have something we're offering that is not generally offered in the world. We can offer knowledge and access of the authentic self and knowledge and access of the satisfying object to whom the self can please. 
So we can at least potentially offer our children and anybody the ultimate of this experience. And what's really nice about in Krishna consciousness is you can offer Krishna both your false temporary, your your authentic your authentic false self and your authentic real self, if that makes the slightest bit of sense. You know, so I have right now a false self, but fully offering that is what we call Varnashram. Working as Prabhupada would say, working according to your psychophysical nature. And then I can also fully offer Krishna my real self. So this is something that we should be doing for our children, and again we talked about this the other day, as early as possible. As early as we possibly can. Finding the child's nature and getting them to do something with that nature to please Krishna. And something that has real value and real meaning. And that kind of experience makes you want to be with the group of people who give you that experience. It's very simple. You know, it's like if, there, if you find a meal that you like, you're going to want to keep going back to that restaurant. You know, if there's a community, if there's, if there's a, a society where we can have an experience of being my authentic self and being able to do something that, that pleases Krishna and where I feel that satisfaction, then I'm going to want to stay in that society. And I'm going to want to be part of any society or any group that gives me that experience. And it's very hard to stay in a situation where I'm not getting that experience. If I'm in a situation where I feel I'm always being inauthentic, I'm not really using my talents, I'm not really using my abilities, I'm not able to develop who I am, or I'm in an experience where I, where I can be authentic, but what I'm doing doesn't have any value, it doesn't have any purpose. You look at it and say, okay, I'm using my talents and my ability, but what am I using it for? What good is it doing for the world? And this happens to many people, you know, they get really expert in, you know, investment banking or... <laughs> or something like that, and then they say, well, what am I doing this for? Who is it helping? This is just, uh, many years ago I had a god sister who was running a business with um, cosmetics. And she asked me if I would help her in the business because one of her salespersons had just left. And I kind of like felt it was book distribution without the books. We had a kiosk in a mall, and I was just stopping people in the mall and polishing their, buffing their nails for them and saying, don't you see how pretty, I hated doing that, my God. But the main reason I hated doing it is I didn't feel that I was making any kind of valuable contribution. I felt like I was cheating people. You know, I'm asking them to spend $12 for this thing that was probably only worth 50 cents and that they didn't even need and wouldn't really add to the value of their life in any way whatsoever. And it was that... I was good at it, although it wasn't exactly my propensity. But the fact that I was doing something that I didn't feel had value and I didn't feel had meaning and I didn't feel was helping anybody made it so I wanted to stop doing it. I wasn't able to continue uh, doing it. And you'll find that um, even criminals will, will explain their activities in such a way that they talk about how they're, they're doing some good for somebody and they're actually helping people. It's quite, it's quite interesting. So the first was relationships of? Second is? And the third is meaningful service. What makes it meaningful, what makes it meaningful is that it's who I really am 
and it's actually Krishna's being pleased by meaningful service and of course that's supposed to be one of the essential features of our Hare Krishna movement and I've seen many young people in our movement decide they want to be devotees get initiated only for this one thing this one thing you have certain people like Indra Swami is expert at doing this with young people absolutely expert he has programs that require all kinds of things to be done he's very open and encouraging and welcoming of course he can't take you know six year olds but he's very opening and encouraging and welcoming for young people to join the program and they're doing things that's meaning they can see it immediately they can immediately see the effect of what they're doing and they develop some expertise in it they put some in area and you see kids go there who weren't so interested in Krishna consciousness and they get initiated and we see it over and over and over again just meaningful service I, I mean I was in a temple where there wasn't any kind of school and most of the kids were in outside schools the parents didn't even have so much training for those kids but the temple president really liked kids and he would engage again here we're talking more about 12 and up but he was engaging kids and doing meaningful service on the temple property and he gave them responsibility which is another big motivator by the way having this feeling that it's my responsibility that's, that's part of meaningful huh? like if I if I if nobody cares if I do it or not if it doesn't matter it's hard to think of it as being meaningful but if it really matters there you're a kid but it actually matters so we had the kids take responsibility for a lot of things on the grounds and for festivals and again those kids who were not in a situation where they were being raised in strict Krishna consciousness wanted to become serious devotees just from that experience that I'm doing some meaningful service according to my nature you know and of course this is something that that Srila Prabhupada worked on doing right from the beginning in many of our temples many of our communities what we do is we more say so many things need to be done doesn't matter whether you're good at it doesn't matter whether you like it doesn't matter whether or not any appreci- anybody appreciates it just go and do it to fill the need and that has exactly the opposite effect on people people become discouraged they become you know uninspired <laughs> they become unenthused <laughs> Then, and they, then they find difficulty with their sadhana, they find difficulty with their whole spiritual life, and often it's because of this just not proper engagement. And, and leaders will say to me, well, but we do have these things that need to be done. What do you do? And I said, well, you know, if, if you would engage people according to their actual nature in a meaningful way, then so many people would be coming to your temple, you wouldn't have any problem filling all of your gaps. And if Krishna saw that you engage people properly, he'd send the people. You know, he'd send the people for what you need. And if you start with this, you know, poverty mentality, that I don't have enough people and I have all these spaces to fill, so I just have to slot people in there, whether it's proper for them or not, then Krishna's like, well, why should I send you more people? You won't even treat them nicely. <laughs> and then you never have enough people. So you see the communities where people are engaged according to their talents and abilities in meaningful service, that the community just grows like anything. And then, and there, and then there becomes more and more and more and more and more opportunity for people to do service according to their nature because there's more and more things. 
So the third is meaningful service. Now, you might have thought of those three, but the fourth one is something that we all know about. It all affects our life. We probably don't think about it. And we probably rarely, if ever, consciously use it. And that was a little bit, a little bit of that here. And this is definitely here. Also a little bit here. Also it's probably here. Kind of indirectly. So this is a, a science that's called, you know, out in the world of psychology, either anchors or triggers. And to understand what this means, I'd like us just all to think, is there some kind of smell that brings on a particular emotional state in us? Any of you have a particular smell that brings on emotion? How many of you have a smell that brings on a particular emotional state? What about a kind of food? Any of you kind of food that brings on an emotional state? Any kind of food? Music. Any of you a piece of music that brings on a particular emotional state? What about a place? A certain place? The strongest ones, by the way, are smell and touch. But almost all of them, almost all of us has these. And this, this isn't a memory that it brings on. It's a, it's a emotional experience. Yes. And there, there's a connection between that sensory input and an emotional experience. And it's pretty much instant and and just spontaneous, isn't it? Right? You smell that cinnamon and vanilla and... Ah. Oh. Right? Or other things you smell and you're like... Ugh. And certain places, there's certain places that you, you don't even want to go to them, isn't it? Certain places you're like, yeah, I'm not going to go to that place. And other places, as soon as you go, you feel, you just feel peaceful and you feel sheltered. So... How do these happen? Well, these things happen through either one very strong experience or repeated weak experiences. So as an example of repeated weak experiences is what I already talked to you about with my father. But I talked to you about that with my father in terms of my relationship with my father. But when did I tell you my father spent time with me? Do you remember? It was in the mornings. It was about 5.30 to 7.30 every morning. What he unintentionally set up was a positive emotional connection for me with the early morning. And I didn't realize that until I was dealing with one Gurukul student who told me he hated being up early in the morning. And I couldn't understand it. You hate being up early in the morning? How can anybody hate being up? It had never even crossed my mind. I just thought that all human beings enjoy the early morning hours. You know, Atmavan Manite Jagad. I just had this assumption that the early morning hours are really cool. I remember when I first came to, I first talked about staying in a temple until the president said, you know, are you okay with getting up early? I'm like, well, of course. And when I met this person who said to me, I, I hate the early morning. I just, I couldn't relate to it. 
And then I kind of sat down and thought, oh, why do I like the early morning? What is it? And I realized it had nothing to do with Krishna consciousness and nothing to do with Shiloh Prabhupada's instructions. It had to do with my father. That I had an emotional relationship between this sweet interchange with my father, you know, who I just, just dearly loved and admired. You know, there was just this, there was an emotional experience of love and friendship and play and nourishment that became linked for me with the early morning. There's a, in U.S. history, there's a few instances of where both fathers and sons were presidents, and one was John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and the, the son, I can't remember which one it was, I think it was John Quincy Adams. He was one of 14 children. And what his mother did was she put aside a certain hour every week for each of the kids. So 14 hours of her week was just, I'm going to be with just that one kid during that time. And I think he had Thursdays from 6 to 7 was his just mommy and me time. And he said his whole life, Thursdays from 6 to 7, was this really special time for him. So this is a repeated week experience. You know, if, if we really enjoy eating with our family and, you know, our mother particularly made a particular kind of food, then we start associating that food with that. So uh, then there can be a one strong experience. So I remember at a certain point, my kids asked me why I like to get the mail, why I like to pick up the post. It was Our post box was down a long driveway, down a steep hill. So it was kind of trouble. You had to walk all the way down the hill and walk, walk all the way back up. And I, didn't, I hadn't done that always. And they said, you know, Mata, you, you always like to go get the mail, you know? And I said, really? I said, I didn't used to be like that. They said, well, I don't know, it's like the past year or so. And I was thinking about it. And I thought, what changed? And I realized, when you were talking about carrying that check today, it reminded me of it, that when we were building our guru cooler, there was one point where Hari K. Swami sent us a check for $35,000. And I happened to be at the mailbox when that check came. And I opened it at the mailbox. And that one strong experience of standing by the mailbox Opening up this envelope with a check for $35,000 in it made it so that I liked to go to the mailbox. I didn't know why. Just like I didn't know why I liked the early morning. I just knew that I wanted to get the mail. Right? And then, of course, there came the Yankee ones. So when we lived in Detroit, we were right across the Canadian border. It was a 20-minute drive across the Canadian border. And there were a lot more Indian families living in Canada, at that time at least, than in America. So the big Indian stores were all across the border. So about once a month, at those, in those days you need a passport to go from Canada to America. So about once a month I would cross the border and go to these big Indian stores and stock up on, you know, Basmati rice and ask for tea dips. So one time I remember my daughter, who was seven at the time, asked if she could come with me. So, you know, sure. So we get to the big store and she says, oh, Mata, I don't want to go in the, in the store. Can I just wait in the car? I'm like, you know, I said, well, I'm going to be ten minutes. So I come back to the car and she's hiding under the dashboard. I said, what's the matter? She said, there was a man in the parking lot, and he looked like one of those men that kidnapped little girls, and I was so scared, and I was hiding him. And she told me for years, whenever she heard the word Canada, she would feel afraid. You know, so we have these, these particular things, and it can be 
you know, every time you went to a temple, like I, I mentioned this a lot, that if kids go to a temple and people say, can you get that kid out of here? Can you keep that kid quiet? Get that kid out of here? Can you keep that kid quiet? Now imagine if you're hearing that every day, every time you go to a temple, every time you walk in the temple room, hey, or people just even look at you. Right? And the whole time your parents are there, you know, that you're, you're next to your parent and they're just completely full of anxiety and they're trying to get to be quiet. And I don't know what the parents are doing. They can't even hear the class anyway, you know, the whole time they're just like, <laughs> you know, and then finally you get to be 18 and, and you said, okay, they've been telling me to get out for 18 years. I'm finally going to get out. You know, that as soon as, as soon as the kid enters that building, right, it happens to the parents sometimes too, doesn't it? Where you just, you just feel unwanted. Well, what am I doing here? Nobody wants me here. And again, it's not so much a conscious thing. It's just, I, I don't like going there. Well, why don't you like going there? I don't know. I just don't particularly like going there. And these things, of course, these are operating below our conscious awareness. Now, you notice that societies do try to in intentionally create positive emotional experiences with aspects of their culture. Festivals. Every culture has festivals, right? Every country has some big festivals related to patriotism. You notice that? And they're fun. There's fireworks, and there's picnics, and there's songs, and there's bands, and there's parades. And it's a school holiday and a work holiday, right? What are they trying to do with those things? They're trying to give you a positive emotional experience that you are connecting to patriotism. Do you understand? That when you think of my country, the emotions with that are connected to this experiences from childhood of the day off from school and the fireworks and the clowns and the parades and this whole emotional experience. And in, in every culture, whether it's, you know, it's a religion, whether it's a culture or a nationality, there is a, a deliberate attempt to try to create experiences that will set up these sort of positive emotional triggers in us. You know, and of course families do this. If families have meal, the idea of a family meal, of course if it's a family meal and everybody's yelling at each other, you're actually creating a negative trigger. But if there's regular family meals where people are loving and they're joking and they're talking about interesting things, then you have that feeling with food and you have that feeling with family. This, does this make sense to everybody? And we think about how there's an offense to chastise somebody in front of the deities. So why is that an offense to chastise somebody in front of the deities? I mean, part of it is probably that the deity really doesn't like to hear you yelling at somebody else. But another thing is you're then creating a negative emotional experience that's connected with the temple room and the deity. You know, if we're teachers, I'm sure we've all run into kids who come to us traumatized about mass or something. You know, they were, they were struggling with mass, and the teacher came and said, what's wrong with you? Can't you figure that out in front of all the other students? And they created this negative emotional connection with mathematics. You know, I had a kid like that with mathematics. Um, her parent, it was a Chinese family, and, you know, their daughter had to be good in mathematics. And so anytime their daughter got one problem wrong on any assignment, they just tore into her. 
they, they basically just tore her apart. And it got to the point that as soon as she opened her mathematics book, she would panic. You know, she, she was failing. She was failing maths. And the mother came to me and said, you've just got to be heavier with her. You know, and when I, when I investigated the situation, I realized that that was the whole problem in the first place. You know, when I talked to her, I said, I said, so what happens as soon as you open your math book? She says, I feel like all my ancestors are in the room watching me. <laughs> Now, by the way, you can rewire triggers. Um, with her, with her, we rewired it. She was an uh, expert violinist, and uh, she said that when she would get up to perform, that she would feel nervous but confident at the same time. So we brought in that nervous, nervous and confident feeling from the violin playing into the mathematics exams, and we were able to rewire the trigger. So you can do that. I, I did that with a, a married couple, where they had gotten to the point that they didn't want to see each other's face. And it turned out that whenever they would get into an argument, they would stare at each other's face. So the person's face had become a negative trigger. Pretty hard if you want to live with somebody. <laughs> you know? So what, what we did was we had them access their positive emotional... You have to feel it. This is not an intellectual kind of thing. Where they, we, they, we access their positive emotional feelings towards each other, and then when that was when they were having a peak emotional experience, I said, "Now look at each other." <laughs> and so we rewired it. I said, "Next time you guys get in a fight, look at each other's feet or something." You know? So you can rewire these things. It is it is possible, you know, through psychological tricks and so forth to rewire these things. But in many cases, they're very strong. And. If we set up negative emotional experiences connected with Krishna consciousness, that in and of itself can drive our children from Krishna consciousness. And if we set up positive emotional experiences with Krishna consciousness, that in and of itself can inspire our children to want to be Krishna conscious. I, I know one, uh, I mean, she's a middle-aged woman now, uh, who was raised in our Hare Krishna movement. And she got initiated in a different sampradaya. She got initiated in a sampradaya that does not require chanting of japa. So she loves kirtan, she loves bhajan, uh, but she told me, she said, I will not chant japa. She said, I've tried, but I can't even look at beads. She said, I can't look at japa beads, and I certainly can't touch them. She said, as soon as I touch them, I recoil. And I said, well, she knew why. She said, you know, because when I was growing up, if we didn't sit properly and we didn't chant properly, we were beaten. She said, I just have not been able to chant Japa. So she's a, she's a Vaishnava, she loves Krishna, and she's actually dedicated her whole life to Krishna consciousness. But she wasn't able to take up a sadhana that involved chanting Japa. So, you know, Prabhupada says, don't use force and punishment for things having to do with Krishna consciousness. So this involves not just the activity, it involves the time, it involves the place. You know, if you have to discipline your child because it's really out of control, take them out of the temple room. You follow what I'm saying? If possible, do it at a different time. I mean, once I understood this, I thought about this, this principle in terms also of my teaching. So, you know, I had a, a big board at the front of the classroom, but, you know, sometimes you have to discipline the kids while you're teaching. But I thought, I want to keep this part, this area clean, so to speak. I want to keep my front of the room with my teaching board clean. So if I saw, you know, there was something I had to deal with as a discipline problem, I started to walk to another part of the room. You know, I'd walk over here. 
And then I'd go. And once they settled down, then I would walk back over here. So that my teaching area was just about teaching. It wasn't about discipline. And of course, after I did that for a while, all I had to do was this. <laughs> And, you know, it made me think about the, the space. Even we have a space in our house. Where do we have the altar in the house? Where do we have the deities? You know, that keeping that, that space. Or the time that we do sadhana and the activities we do about Krishna consciousness. Probably got angry at Jagadish when he forced his young child to offer obeisances in the temple. When he pushed his head down to offer obeisances. No, don't force So, I mean, your kid's not going to die if they hate mass, but I really don't think you want them to hate Krishna. So the fourth is positive emotional experiences. Positive emotional experiences. So, of course, you know, things happen. But as, as much as we possibly can, to be conscious that repeated weak experiences and strong... So one strong experience or repeated weak experience. And what we're basically aiming for with our kids is both. We want to give them a repeated weak experience in terms of their Krishna conscious practice. Where it's not some big <laughs> but on a regular basis there's something about that some connection with the positive emotions. And then we also want to try to as far as we can have them experience some peak and you know, with our festivals, with some service. You follow what I'm saying? We want to have, have both of those and do what we can to eliminate or avoid having some heavy negative emotional experience connected with some part of Krishna consciousness. So these are the four main things. Relationships of love and trust and stories and meaningful service and positive emotional experiences. So I have some quotes here that uh, relate to these things. If you can take this and, and pass this around. These are just some, some quotes on each of these four things. And what we've seen is that each of these, any of these four things are so powerful that just one of them by itself will induce somebody, this is the culture and this is the lifestyle that I want. You know, and, and I, had, I had thought, again, as I started off at the beginning of this seminar, you know, if you had asked me 40 years ago, I would have given you a different answer. I would have said example and habit. My answer would have been example and habit. And you know what? I was wrong. It's not example and habit. If your habit is full of negative emotional experiences, you may be doing more harm than good. If you have an example without relationships of love and trust, again, it's not going to make it. If you're giving direct instruction and philosophical instruction without stories, it's not going to be very effective. If there's no meaningful service, then there's no way to, to live what you're being taught. There's no way to put it into practice. There's no way to actually experience it. It becomes just some idea of philosophy. But I've seen kids take up Krishna consciousness with just one of those things. You know, just one. What to speak of if there's all four? And, you know, this is really the, the big answer when people say... My situation's less than ideal. 
you know, I, I live far from a devotee school. My kids have to go to a non-devotee school. My spouse isn't a devotee. When people have these kind of, of situations that they're dealing with, just even trying to get any of these. So the first is... And second, third, this fourth is not meant to write on when you're standing. And the fourth is. Okay, anybody have any questions or comments or anything that you want to discuss? Yes. Um, could you say something about, because I've often thought that sometimes in school we give children writing assignments which are based on Christian conscious literature. And I've experienced that. I remember one in particular we did something around Radharani on her birthday and adverts. And the kids just ended up hating it. And I ended up hating it. It was just a really negative sort of experience, so I'm just wondering... It's interesting you bring that up. So she was saying they had a writing assignment about Radharani on her appearance day, and it ended up to be a very negative experience that not only she and all the kids and even you as a teacher hated it. And I remember one of my students saying, the fact that you give us assignments from reading Srila Prabhupada's books makes it harder for me to like Srila Prabhupada's books, the fact that it's an assignment. so. You know, you don't want to not give them Krishna conscious things to do, but it's a question of keeping in mind how do I give them Krishna conscious things to do as a teacher in a school or as a parent even at home that are assigned, that are expected, that are not negotiable and without it being a forced thing and without it being something that's negative. And that may require some prayer, but at least it requires starting out like that, that I, that I keep that in mind that I don't just think because they're doing something that's Krishna conscious that's all that needs to be there I'm telling you know because I have to read from Srila Prabhupada's books because they have to write something about Radharani because I have then automatically that's going to help them in their Krishna consciousness but bring in this other thing too what kind of relationship am I having am I using an, an authority fear relationship to get them to do it or is it a love and trust relationship? Are they able to, to do that thing in, in a way that brings out their own talents and abilities and they feel satisfied? You know, what, what's, the, what are the, what's the emotions around what's going on? And if you see things that are going in a negative direction, I keep having to stop myself from saying here, when things are going south, when you see things... <laughs> When you see things going north, yeah. So, when you see things going in, in a negative way, you don't know that in most of the world that, that that's an expression? You really didn't know that. You know, the vast majority of the inhabited parts of the... The vast parts of the in, inhabited parts of the Earth are in the northern hemisphere. And in most of the world, when things are going badly, you say they're going south. It's an idiom. And you know, in, in, the, in the Vedas, south is a metaphor for death. So, you know, it, it's, it's part, part of my idioms. And, and here I am south of the equator, you know, and so I have to keep like, don't use that idiom. 
So when when uh, when if, if, if you're kind of huh? I think you can still use it. Oh really? Yeah. Beach will more attached to the north because the South Island's colder. And you have to pay. Put your house facing north. Okay. All right. Okay. If you keep going south, you're in Antarctica. Okay. But I think it's a question of being sensitive. You know, I mean, I can remember when I had no sensitivity to this at all. When, when, I, when I really thought it's all just about what you do. It, it's all about technique. It's all about the, the, just the behaviors. And it's not about the relationships. And it's not about the emotions. It's so embarrassing to say that. But, you know, we really have to be careful that we don't just think... Well, I'm sitting down with my child and chanting japa. That will be very good for their spiritual life. Well, maybe and maybe not. You know, if it's you, sit down and chant japa now because I'm the father and I say so. That's probably not very good for their spiritual life. You'd be better off having them not chant japa at all than to do that. So it's... You know, and that doesn't mean you just... Well, I'm not going to have my kid do anything Krishna conscious because I might mess it up. That was, that was the way Arjuna reacted. He said, well, I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. Let me just not do it. Krishna says, no, do it for the right reasons. <laughs> so we... And we're imperfect. Okay, we're going to make mistakes. All right, that, that's a given. Nothing can be done about that except ask for God's grace. But at least to have that in mind, that my relationship with the person and the emotional experience and their particular nature is just as much of an importance as the activity. That the, the activity in and of itself is not really... If it was the activity, why would Prabhupada say if you hear from professional Bhagavatam reciters, there's no benefit? If it was just the activity. Why would we say that? Yes. Well, Prabhupada say with that, don't bring too many no's. He was saying that specifically with raising children. Don't have everything be no's. But see, now look at love and trust stories and meaningful service. You know, if, if you have a relationship, like my father told me, don't smoke. But I didn't take that as a cause for rebellion. And when I was in high school, 90% of the kids smoked. Most of my friends smoked. But I didn't. And I never took it that my father was was um, restricting me in some. I never took it like that. I did not take it as an item to rebel against. It never got coded in my in my mind. Be 
because I really, it was part of a love and trust relationship. It wasn't, you know, and sometimes you have to say to kids, look, I know you don't agree with me. I know, I know you don't agree with me. I, I, and I'm not able right now to convince you. And the time make, you know, the time will come when you have the ability to choose to do something differently than what I'm telling you. You know, I remember one parent saying, don't tell them that. I said, look, they already know it. They already know they're going to grow up and they're not going to have to listen to you anymore. It's not like you're giving them some kind of new information. What you're really doing is you're acknowledging. You're acknowledging. This, I, I can't really force you when you say that to them. Look, the time will come when you're going to make your own choice about this. But I'm, I'm asking you, if you can't understand why I'm doing this, at least trust that I'm doing it because I love you. Even if you don't agree with my thinking about it. Which is very different than because I said so. Which is just lazy. You know, and if, you, if you've tried, you know, it depends on the age of the child again, what I'm talking about. But if, if, you've, if you've tried to explain it to them and they still just, they just won't agree. And then it can be, you know, okay, you, you, actually, you actually don't have to agree. I'm not... I'm not saying that you have to agree. But can you at least trust that I'm coming from a place of love and concern for you? And the reason I'm saying... And then you have to look, is that really what's happening? It, it, that's got to be real. And so I'm, I'm asking you to agree with my intentions, even if you don't agree with the, with the scripture. And I'm, I'm hoping that in time you come to see why I'm, I'm saying this. The time will come that if you decide not to do this or you decide to do this, there's nothing I can do. But I hope in time you'll come to see the reason behind what I'm doing. And the majority of human beings, if you deal with them like that, will cooperate. I mean, wouldn't you? I would. You know, if, if I had somebody, especially if they're in charge of me and they're taking care of me, and they, if they said, look at me, well, you know, I'm really sorry. But this is, you know, I know you don't agree with it, but this is just the way that I want to do it here. And this is, I mean, I have people said that. I've had town presidents say, look, you know, this is the way we want to do it for the devotees here. And you may not agree with it, but this is what we've done to take care of the devotees. And I'm asking you to respect it. How would you not do that? I mean, unless he hated the person. You know, does that make sense? You know, if you have a relationship with them of love and trust, naturally you want to you want to honor their feelings, even if you don't agree. So that's we we very much respond to that kind of relationship. We're we're you know unless you're a sociopath, I mean, unless there's actually something wrong with you, you know, unless we've got some really crossed wires, we we respond to that if it's genuine. about love and trust in terms of the different um, stages of childhood. You know, like Chanaki talks about from 0 to 5, Papa talks about from 10 to 16, is a dangerous time. That's a well, you're talking about love and trust in terms of the stages of childhood, you know, when you're talking about really, really little kids, um, they mostly, there's mostly love and trust because you're taking care of their needs and they're so dependent on you. There's almost an automatic love and trust which you have to work really hard to mess up. Kind of, if you're if you're a normal functioning human being, there's going to be some love and trust. You know, you 
really, really have to blow it to not have that. You know, if you just leave your kid alone in the house for six hours at a time without feeding them or something, you know what I'm saying? When you're always intoxicated. And so that, that's kind of very naturally there for a very young child. And then as they begin to reason, which usually starts somewhere at about four years old, some, somewhere, four or five years old, when they can actually think things through and, well, why are you doing this and what's going on here and do I have to do this? We're not talking about just asserting their rebellion at one and a half and saying no, but I'm talking about being able to, to be reasoned with. At, at that point, you try to start reasoning with them and dealing with them as, as somebody who's able to be reasoned with, at least on some level. And, yeah, there's all kinds of respectful ways to do that. I, I really like in that book, How to Talk So His Kids Can Listen, How to Listen So Kids Can Talk, where they talk about things like fulfill your kids' desires and fantasy instead of just saying no. I found that to be very effective, and I found that the children actually appreciate that. Instead of just saying, you know, we don't have any more apples, sorry. If you say, you know, well, I'm working on my Prapti City mantra, apple fall from the sky. Oops, didn't happen, sorry. And, and, and they appreciate that. They appreciate that you're, you're basically recognizing that I want to, I, I, w- I would like to satisfy you, I'm just not able right now. And that resonates with them more than just saying, I would like to satisfy you, but I'm not able right now, would you leave me alone? And, and ways, ways to demonstrate that you care about their feelings and you care about their needs, even if you disagree with them. And the older they get, the more you can do that in an intelligent, logical, reasoned way. And the older they get, the more you can do that in a way where you really hear what they have to say because they have something to say. You follow? The one-year-old doesn't have much to say. The four-year-old has a lot to say, and the eight-year-old has a lot more to say, and the twelve-year-old has a lot more to say, and 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 listening. And even if you're not going to give them what they want or do what they want, you can still say it's not going to kill you to say, you know, hey, that was a very good point. That w- that was a really good point, and you know, you're right about that. But I'm still not comfortable with it. Sorry. You know, I I hear you. I I understand your point. I even agree that it's a good point. But I don't personally feel comfortable doing that. I'm the parent, and I'm responsible for you, and I I wouldn't feel safe, or I wouldn't feel comfortable, or I wouldn't feel peaceful doing that. And and to deal with them, you know, you're you're in charge. Not that you're supposed to just let the kid do whatever they want. I mean, you'd be lucky if they live to be five if you do that. So when, when, you know, when Tranika talks about being as strict as a tiger, I just see that more in terms of what responsibilities you expect from them. I don't, I've never understood that in terms of discipline exactly, but I've always understood in terms of responsibility. And I haven't understood it in terms of discipline because, like he says, you don't discipline a child until they're five, but Madhusoda was disciplining Krishna before he was five. And if you never discipline a child before they're five, you're going to have a terror on your hands. You're not even going to like your kid. 
No one else is going to like them either. So it can't be that. It, it can't be that you never discipline a child under the age of five. That's impossible. But I saw it as responsibility. So until they're five, you don't give them much responsibility. Well, Krishna had responsibility before he was five. But I see that under the age of five, you don't give, you know, you're not going to give them very many household chores. Of course, sometimes they really want to when they're three and four. You know, in, in a school, like in a nursery school, I never had kids in a nursery school that had to take responsibility for learning anything. They just have fun. You know, a lot of the play was educational play, but I didn't hold them accountable to learn anything. You follow? And then so from 5 to 10, probably says you gradually increase the discipline. So I understand this as you gradually increase what kind of responsibility you expect. Like usually from age 5 to 7, then I would expect them to work for a certain amount of time. No, I didn't expect... Yeah, I didn't, from 5 to 7. 5 to 7, it's like... Okay, we're going to work as long as you're happy. And then starting at 7, then I said, okay, we, we have to get a page done. Or we have to get this lesson done. And then starting it at age 10 was when I said, you don't get this done in school, it becomes homework. And you're actually responsible, and I'm going to hold you accountable. And if you don't get this thing done, you have to make it up. So I see being as strict as a tiger in that sense, that... I'm now expecting you to be a responsible person. I'm expecting if you have a job to do that you're going to do it and you're going to do it on time and you're going to do it well. And if you don't do it and you don't do it on time and you don't do it well, then you've got to fix it. I don't expect that from a three-year-old. And I barely expect that from a five-year-old. You know, but by ten, then I'm expecting that. You know, and certainly by 15, 16, then I'm fully expecting that. 10, I'm not expecting it even 100%. That it's gradually, gradually, gradually. And responsibility is one of the main motivators for people. You know why? Because when you have something that you're responsible for, you feel valued. If you have no responsibility, you feel that you have no value. There's a direct connection between a feeling of being valued and being important to somebody and having some responsibility that people are actually counting on you for. If you don't put away the dishes, it matters. And it's not that mommy or daddy are just going to put them away anyway. What you're doing matters. And it has consequences and people are affected. That's a very strong motivator for us. It it, it actually is part of, of, of how we feel that we are loved. If I think that nothing I do matters, and if I don't do it, somebody else will do it anyway, and nobody cares, and nobody notices, then I think that nobody loves me. So I see it like Is that all right? Okay, I think we should stop now because we've run way over time. Thank you very much. Should we probably keep chatting?